Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up in this week's episode, what happened to all of the stars in our sky? Well, astrophysicist Peter Gallagher will be talking to us about light pollution and how it is literally blotting out the stars above us. First, though, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. And we get to all of those comments later on in the podcast. Uh, OK, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me, uh, as always, is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and science communicator Catherine McGuinness. Our first story, Catherine, has to do with lung cancer. Yes. So uh, lung cancer would be one of the most common and the deadliest cancers around. And about a quarter of all global cases of lung cancer, uh, this gene mutation occurs. It's the EGF or gene mutation, the epidermal growth factor receptor. And the mutation on this gene, basically what it does is it encourages the cancer to grow and spread because this gene, its its normal function is to uh, help cells grow and survive. Um, So what this particular study has done is that they had a sample group over 26 countries of patients who are post-operative lung cancer. They've had their their tumours removed and there was about 680 odd people in the study aged between 30 and 86 and they were given this uh, pill to take post-operatively and what this is, it's a kinase inhibitor. So the the drug ozermeritinib, uh, what it does is it significantly lowered the risk of death in lung cancer patients after the tumour removal by basically blocking the the mutation and stopping it, encouraging the cancer to grow and spread. And it actually had a 51% success rate in lowering the risk of death postoperatively in lung cancer patients. That's really significant, right? This is um, the sort of figure you don't often see when it comes to medical interventions. No, not at all. And it's it's really, um, it's been quite an interesting study because this is really important. It's a breakthrough, but also it also calls for uh, the the screening of lung cancer patients for this gene mutation because it acts as a biomarker. And it could also just completely revolutionize how treatment um, treatments are set out, how people and their treatment schedules are developed even before uh, a tumor has to be removed or chemotherapy becomes involved as well. Yeah, and and it's you know it's starting to become more and more the case when it comes to, uh, to to sort of cancers that we're seeing more and more sort of genetic profiling of the tumor as well as of the patients themselves to see um, how they might respond to treatment or um, what the profile is of of the of the tumor itself. Really, really exciting to hear um, an intervention that is you know that is an easy one to take as well as opposed to something mm-hmm. like um, like radiation. Uh, are there any um, yeah. are there any negatives to this that they, they talk about in the in the study? Any side effects or any um, any other? No, the, the, I mean, it's, it's pretty positive. The the side effects are very minimal, um, and they're they're just very very livable side effects, if you like. And that is another. Um, a positive about this 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 treatment is that the side effects are livable, not like something where you've chemotherapy or radiation where the side effects are quite serious and can cause their own health issues. So really all around it's a good news story and it, it's a very positive step forward. Amazing. Uh, Shane, our second story has to do with an x-ray. 
It does. The X-ray of um, the first time we've taken an X-ray of a single atom. And by we, I mean very clever people working in Ohio in the United States. Um, although I do have a connection to this sort of world. When, when I was doing my postdoc in Imperial College, my friends were all microscopists. So they worked with these incredibly precise microscopes that could image down to individual atoms and do remarkable things. The fact that you can see an atom is itself quite remarkable. So um, this, this is um, combining an instrument that they use called a scanning tunneling microscope or STM with uh, an X-ray from a synchrotron. So it's kind of taking two big bits of physics equipment and sticking them together. And, and that has allowed them to detect uh, individual atoms. Until now, we would have needed around 10,000 atoms in order to get a signal. So X-rays are very helpful because they can not only um, see something is there, but they can actually give you an optical fingerprint of the thing you're looking at. And so by, by using synchrotron X-rays, which are much more energetic, they're able to uh, probe far deeper into the into the like the atoms of interest. In this case, it was a piece of iron, a single atom of iron, and uh, they were able to, uh, to to generate an optical fingerprint from it. And uh, this this is really remarkable to be able to do this. And it's only the beginning of a whole new area of microscopy. And I can only imagine the cost um, associated with getting a synchrotron couple of million, if not tens of million, and an STM, a scanning tunneling microscope, which relies on quantum effects, and putting those two together and having any change out of maybe 40, 50 million dollars. So what is the the benefit of being able to image something like this that we we know, I mean, relatively well in some respects? We know what an atom is. We, we know the function of it. Why do we need to see an X-ray of one? Because um, when it comes to making modern electronics, if you go out to Intel or other factories like that, they'll be making things that might be one or two atoms thick. And if they have, if there's an error in their technologies, right, if you're working in somewhere called failure analysis, which is an actual place in Intel um, where they look to see why chips failed, um, they, are, they, they peel the layers back and they might look for individual atoms or groups of atoms that shouldn't be there, that are upsetting the, um, the physics. And so th that's what uh, this sort of piece of kit would be used for. And whilst I said it would cost tens of millions, that's a drop in the ocean to those big companies who invest even more in the, in the piece of equipment they have to build the chips in the first place. Okay, our third story, Catherine, has to do with kitty cats. It does. And th I, I, this is uh, close to my heart because I do volunteer with cat shelters and, and help do the trap neuter release scheme. So this is trying to find a new method of neutering animals non-surgical and it's coming from Cincinnati Zoo, Massachusetts General Hospital and Horaging Therapy Centre. And so this is a really interesting study because this brought together two very different scientists um, in the name of research and possibly a $25 million prize. <laughs> so yeah. we have the, the Michelson Found Animal Foundation over in the US a couple of years ago announced $50 million of funding and a $25 million prize, all related to the control and looking after homeless cats and dogs. Now, there are about one and a half billion homeless cats and dogs around the world. In Ireland, we, particularly with cats, we have an issue with feral cats and the feral population. And what this study has done is it brought together um, a reproductive biologist, 
and a conservation biologist who were coming from very different areas. So the conservation biologist was working in Cincinnati Zoo and what he was trying to do was um, improve reproduction in wild cats like ocelots. And the reproductive biologist was looking at humans and in particular looking at AMH, which is the anti-malarian hormone, which is to do with um, the follicles in the ovaries. Anyone who's been through IVF would know all about that. And he was looking at mice. And what he noticed was that if you upped the AMH in mice, the follicles actually stopped forming, so no eggs, so therefore contraception in mice. And unfortunately, his colleagues were like, well, we've got contraception already in humans, so what's the point of this? In comes a conservation biologist. He's looking at AMH in cats. And they realise, actually, if they work together and they, they increase the AMH in cats, we get the same result. So follicles stop producing and the cats, basically the female cats, can't become pregnant. So how this worked was they took um, a benign virus, usually used in gene therapy, and they uh, injected a cat AMH into it. And this went into the thigh muscle of the cats. And it actually worked. So they, they socialized the female cats that were treated with Toms and there were no pregnancies. But all the other sexual hormones are still normal. So the cats still go into heat, but there's no pregnancy resulting. And of course, the control group, kittens everywhere. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the interesting thing about this now is how long will it remain first of all it's looking like probably about two years because what happens is the amh that's added in it doesn't become part of the cat's muscle dna so as cells regenerate we're going to lose it so it, it, its effectiveness will lessen also you have to question what the application of it is for private responsible cat owners and dog owners um because Surely Spain is a lot better because it's permanent. Um, you know, if you use this type of therapy, your cat is still going into heat. And also, you know, if spayed animals are protected against mammalian cancer and all those sorts of other diseases. So for the health of the animals, Spain at the moment is still better. However, if they can get this to work and I think in about five years, it could be commercially available. It'd be very good for feral populations. And uh, if they can get it to work on dogs as well, they might just scoop the $25 million prize. Well, look, you know, being able to spay animals without surgery, even temporarily, and being able to do that cost effectively certainly w would have um, benefits to, to feral cat populations and possibly other um, feral populations in the future. So can definitely see the benefit of that. Um, our final story, Shane, has to do with the Einstein tile, uh, which I think we covered a few weeks ago. We did. And you got it wrong the last time. It's Einstein. So because it's, uh, it's not the fella. It's uh, from the German word for one stone. And this is, uh, it, we reported about this in March when mathematicians in the UK had found a 13-sided shape called a hat that was able to form a pattern um, without any gaps and without repeating, the, uh, having a kind of rep um, a repeating pattern, uh, if you know what I mean. So if you think of the tiles in your bathroom floor, they cover all of the ground, but the pattern repeats itself. So there's a symmetry to it. There's no symmetry in what um, we reported in March. And the way they built this 13-sided shape was taking something that looked like a hat and adding it with um, the reflection of the hat. And by putting those two bits together, they come, came up with a 13-sided shape and it allowed them to build this infinite space without any repetition. And now only a, a couple of, well, weeks later, the same group have done it again. And they have found another Einstein shape 
that is they're calling it a a, a vampire vampire Einstein because they didn't need to put a shape and the reflection of a shape together to make this weird um, uh, weird shape. They were able to make a novel shape, something completely on its own. And it's doing the very same thing. And mathematicians are incredibly excited about it. So um, this is essentially uh, like a, a jigsaw piece that is the same size and shape mm-hmm. and clicks into other pieces exactly the same to make a, a perfectly smooth and, um, and gapless 2D landscape. And exactly. yet there's no repetition at all, like you might see in Houndstooth, for example. Yeah, and no gaps whatsoever. And so uh, it's called, I love it, a strictly chiral aperiodic monotile, right? <laughs> Good name for a band. And, um, remi- and remind me again why this is important. Yeah, it's important because if you have symmetries in materials, that can often be the point at which they'll fail. So if you think of crystals, they'll crack in certain orientations because um, they'll follow lines of symmetry and you can get these sort of mechanical stresses along them. So if you have um, um, this two-dimensional shape and it has no periodicity at all, there's no repeating pattern in it, it would mean it would be an awful lot stronger um, and it would be a, a lot a lot, lot harder to, to break it up. How exactly do you find something like this? I mean, it sounds like something very easy for an AI program to do, no? That's your answer to everything, but uh, <laughs> they they kind of did, I suppose. So um, they what they would have done is that this is all done computationally, and so they would have taken that Einstein tile that we talked about in March, and literally they just start playing with the edges of it and reshaping uh, it, and then running simulations to see what would result. And having done that millions of perhaps if not billions of times using a computer, they came up with this new shape. Yeah, it seems like a very exhaustive task for not an enormous amount of payback, but maybe that's just me. Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and science communicator Catherine McGuinness, thank you very much. Now, it is a regular activity in our household to uh, go outside and try and observe some of the things that we've heard about uh, on the radio or read in newspapers that are going on in the night sky. But um, my two poor children are rarely given any joy because in Monkstown in Dublin, you can see absolutely nothing of the night sky. And as you travel across the country, you might notice that we are seeing less and less of the beauty that our night sky affords us. And it's often due to the increase of light pollution. And recent studies in the UK have shown that 61% of the population there can only see 10 stars in the Orion constellation. It's terrifying, particularly if you are head of astrophysics at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies, as Professor Peter Gallagher is. He joins me now. Welcome to the program, Peter. Um, this is, is something, obviously, that, you know, that, that depends on where you are in the country. If you happen to be in Kerry on a bright and clear night, you can, uh, if you're in the right spot, see an amazing panoply of, sky, of stars above you. But, but in any urban or uh, even slightly built up area, anywhere with streetlights or, or forecourts, we, we really are starting to see just a, a whole lot of grey when we look up. And that's a problem. Yeah, and the thing is that a lot of our lights are just poorly designed and they're sending light up into the sky rather than focusing it downwards. And, you know, when you fly you know, home from your summer holidays or you see these pictures from the International um, 
space station, you see Dublin lit up and Cork lit up and Belfast lit up. And you shouldn't be able to see these cities from above because you're just wasting light. And it's not just a matter of not seeing the stars. It's also just a waste of energy. You shouldn't be sending it up there. So every local authority in the country should be saying, hold on, let's look at this light pollution because we're sending half of it upwards. But I mean, the problem for astronomy is that once you're in these urban areas where people are you know, shining bright blue LEDs upwards, um, we just can't see the night sky. And, that, and I think that's a terrible shame that we can't see the beautiful Milky Way stretching across the sky. But once you go out into the Midlands or you know, out into Mayo, there's a dark skies park in Mayo and also in Kerry. They have just beautiful, beautiful black skies with no artificial lighting. And then you can see the Milky Way. You know, it, it, it stretches like a band of stars right across the sky. And you should be able to see it every single night if it's not cloudy, of course. But um, but there is an easy solution to this. And that's just design the lighting pr- properly. And that is like, don't have them too bright. Have a cover on them so the light doesn't go up. And then don't have them too blue because blue is just it's it, blue scatters all over the place. Red is ready, ready or, or more yellowy. It's just a much more natural color uh, to, to, to help with with light pollution. So there's easy steps to take. Yeah, they seem reasonable enough. Of course, it does require changing every light bulb in in, in Ireland, it sounds like, um, which obviously will take time. But I suppose an agreement that that, that we should at least start changing that would be good do we have anything close to uh, the the so-called star count that was the the study i was referring to in the opening that 61 percent of people were unable to see 10 stars in the orion constellation due to light pollution like that's you know that's that's pretty bad 61 percent yeah yeah i mean i mean even just myself i live five kilometers from the city center uh, of dublin and it's only the brightest stars. It's even tough to see. You can't, certainly can't see the Milky Way at all. And you can see only the brightest of stars. Now, it's tens of stars that you can you can see, but it's a tiny fraction uh, of the, the stars that I would see if I was in, you know, Kerry or, or, or Fermanagh or somewhere like that, where it's where it's particularly dark. Um, some, some of our local authorities, like Fingal, uh, uh, are, already have... Um, uh, measures put into their county development plans to try and ensure that there isn't as much light pollution. So future developments will have it. And then all of those ye- yellow sodium lights that are around the place, they're gradually being replaced with LED lights. But when people make those choices, they should just put ones that are dark sky friendly. Um, so don't waste energy and don't ruin the night sky uh, for, for people. Um, is it, I mean, is it possible just by changing the direction of, of the lights and by changing the luminosity and the 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 nature of the LED, I mean, that, that sounds like a lot, but it's not really. W- yeah. Would you would you would you get a dark city again? Would you you know could Dublin ever be in a position to to see the night sky properly? Do you think? Well, okay, well, or Cork or Galway, not being Dublin centric, of course. Yeah, yeah, you can turn down the lights to, to some extent. Um, we we need lighting for some things, you know, for security. There, there is there's good reason for it, um, but you know, there's a, there's a way of doing it that that would reveal an awful lot more of the star, the the, the night sky, um. And, and the measures that, you know, with, with the shielding and turning down the lights a little bit and using the right wavelengths, it will reveal an awful lot more uh, of the night sky to people. But I, 
there's also an impact on 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 sleep patterns and on wildlife as well so bats for example when they're foraging um uh, and other nocturnal animals um their foraging routes get disrupted by bright lights uh, they don't like them um, and then other things that can happen is as you know insects can cluster around lights and then bats or and other animals will kind of forage around them so you affect wildlife by by having these and, and also you reveal wildlife so other predators can find them so you know having the places places permanently lit up is a bad idea for wildlife and then human sleep patterns can be affected as well and and, and i notice that on on my street as well it's it's, a, it's an old street from it's a, a house or 100 years old or something but they've started changing the sodium lights which are lovely kind of yellow glow to them very quite natural uh, but they've put in bright blue led lights with a flat head on them and so it's spilling a blue light into the bedrooms yeah. and that's affecting you know sleep patterns and this is not just me noticing it it's a known problem with led light fixtures that you know they're, they're that if, if people don't think about the, the impacts on people and foraging in the night sky then you'll get poor poor outcomes and and again you know affect wildlife affect people's health ultimately and then you know our, our enjoyment of the night sky is there anything we can do ourselves to reduce light pollution in our area uh, in our homes for example yeah, well, I mean, yeah, there is actually, you know, people who do up their gardens with uplighters, you know, really bad idea. If you're putting uplighters, you know, in, in your garden, that's not a good thing to do. The way to get around it is to put them on walls and have the light going down and don't have them too bright. Because uh, if they're too bright, then they just, you know, they reflect off the ground. So, you know, that's a very simple one. And if you are putting in lights on your house, so security lights, um, you know, make them so that the, the, the heads or the covers on them uh, directs the light into the area that you need, not into your neighbours and not up, certainly not up into the skies. So even at Dunsink Observatory, where I'm based, um, we had lighting put in recently and we just made made sure that uh, the electricians and the contractors understood that the lights had to point downwards, they hadn't to be too bright. And we also put on uh, motion sensors on them, so they're not permanently on. And we're not wasting light all night, even though they're security lights. They only come on when somebody's wandering around the the the, the site, um, yeah. and then they come on. And so there's like again, it's a, it's a, it's it's kind of a, it's just common sense uh, as regards. It is common electricity. sense, but like we, we are, as you know, as a species, not great at applying common sense. And and this, you know, really struck me. It's one of the reasons I want to speak to you about it. Research by a physicist by the name of Christopher Kaiba of the German Center for Geosciences. He said that um, light pollution is now causing the night sky to brighten at a rate of around 10% a year. And he says um, that increase threatens to obliterate the sight of all but the most brilliant stars in one generation. He says a child born where 250 stars are visible at night today would only be able to see about 100 by the time they see, by the time they reach 18. You know, that is a, a really, and, and I'm wondering, you know, as an astronomer who's obviously fascinated with not just our, our closest star, I know you're a solar um, astrophysicist, but, but, but stars in general, is there, a, is there a link between being able to see the stars and being inspired to work in astrophysics or, or astronomy? I mean, do, do, well, if you can't we... see the night sky, are, are you going to research it? Well, well, 
The natural world, we're all inspired by the natural world around us, be they trees or bushes or plants or insects or, you know, the oceans or, or the night sky. And, and if you don't have access to them, I think you're missing something of the natural mm. world around you. And uh, and I think it's very hard to be inspired by a textbook that is a dry textbook about the night sky. So I think people are losing something. I think to think that a child would grow up without seeing the night sky, I think, is 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 sad. Um, and I think they're they're losing part of the world that they live in and and the wonder of the world they live in. For astronomers now, um, we tend to go to telescopes that are at the top of large mountains, um, like in Chile or Hawaii or whatever. And part of that is to get above the uh, clouds, but the other part of that is to get away from light pollution. Um, So we're already taking measures on that regard. So here at Dunsink Observatory, it was great for astronomy in the 1800s. Um, nowadays, it's just too bright to do astronomy here, and mm. uh, you know that so that we we can't possibly do uh, proper professional astronomy at the observatory anymore because of the Dub- Dublin city lights. And this is something that obviously that, that you're very passionate about communicating um, the the science of of our our universe and our cosmos, and and that's why um, there's a new sort of collaboration between Armagh. Burr, where the Leviathan telescope was, the beautiful historic telescope that, uh, and now the new radio telescope, uh, and uh, Armagh Planetarium. Can you tell me a little bit about that, um, about this partnership and what what it means? Yeah, I mean Ireland has a, a long history of 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 astronomy. We've been doing it for hundreds of, if not thousands of years, if you want to go back to Newgrange, and uh, and but you know Armagh Burr and Dunsink have been working together for the past. Uh, since the 1790s, really, 1800. And we've been measuring the distances to stars. We've been discovering spiral galaxies. um, We've been working on kind of astronomical mathematics, uh, but always irrespective of borders and famines and 1916 risings and all of those goings on, we've continued to do astronomy together. So we've launched this new thing called the the Astronomical Observatories of Ireland. And that allows us to kind of put together a framework to work together. And we're going to work together on research in astronomy. We're going to educate more uh, PhD students and students. And we also want to connect to the general public as well at Armagh, Burr and Dunsink. So it's a new activity. It was launched by uh, until Tishuk Leo Radker about two weeks ago. So it's a very exciting time for astronomy in Ireland. And, you know, we've joined the European Southern Observatory. We've built LOFAR. We're part of the European Space Agency. So this is really a golden age for astronomy in Ireland. And, uh, you know, we as astronomers are looking to make new discoveries. That's that's what it's all about. But also we want to bring the public along with us and hopefully they, you know, get to enjoy the night sky in the same way that we do. Where is, if you wanted to see the sky as best as you could, where in the world is the best place to go? Naked well, eye. Okay, so so let's, let's, there's a couple of ways to answer this. I think a really accessible place is when you go, some people go on holidays to the Canary Islands. Canary Islands is amazing for the night sky. If you go there and you're, you know, a lot of people go to the beach, but there are mountains like El Tede and, uh, and other mountains there. You can take a bus up or take a car up. And once you get up there, it is magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. So that's, why is that? That's kind of the, well, uh, a couple of things you get above the clouds, you know, that's n- number one. Number two, there's no lights up there at all. You go up a windy road that's very easy to fall off the side of. It's not, not the safest of roads to get up to these mountain sites, as, as you probably know from going to some of these places. 
just get up above the clouds, uh, no rain, no clouds, no light pollution, and then you've got the night sky. In fact, I'm overwhelmed when I'm up there. I can't pick out the constellations sometimes because there's so many stars. Like, hold on a sec. I'm used to a dark sky where I can only see the bright stars, the constellation. Right. That, that that's amazing. But here in Ireland, you know, there's a dark sky park in 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 Mayo. There's a dark sky park in um, in K- County Kerry as well, and they're both kind of international grade so-called dark sky parks. Right. And there's one there's one in Northern Ireland as well in in County Fermanagh, and you can go to those places where they actually where the local authorities have embraced this and have done all the light sky pollution stuff where they're not putting in the bright lights and so on, mm. and they're trying to protect the night sky and they have uh, festivals, they have um, uh, public talks, all kinds of things around the night sky. So check those ones out. Dark Sky Ireland is the name of the website and uh, you can find out all about it there. Yeah, I I remember uh, a a, a summer evening, maybe 10 years ago now, and not in the most, you know, remote of places, in Killarney and looking up at the sky and realising how rich the experience was compared to what we experience in in Dublin. How beautiful the sky is in Kerry! Uh, one of the many yeah. reasons we choose to go there. Um, uh, Professor Peter Gallagher from the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies. Thanks very much for your time. Let us know what the night sky is like where you are. Tell us where you are and what the sky is like on a clear day, obviously, because <laughs> duh. And uh, and we will then do a little bit of a map next week on the podcast and, and, and see where the best place is to view the night sky. So where you're from, you can email us science at newstalk.com or you can tweet us we're at Newstalk Science and what the, the night sky is like. How how much can you see of what of what we, we see in, in photographs, the Milky Way and so on. Right, it's time to look back at some of your emails and comments from last week. And Shane Bergen had a story in uh, the program about making liquid fuels from carbon dioxide. And Lauren in Cork says, how have I gone 43 years, have a master's degree and the self-proclaimed whiz on my local pub quiz team, but not know that trees grow from the air and not the ground? Well, obviously, um, Lauren, the, you know, we know that plants and trees do get nutrients and water from the ground, but the carbon that they get is, for the most part, the vast amount of carbon they get is fixed uh, by sunlight. You probably have heard that phrase before. Um, and so it, it's probably more you hadn't thought about it, but um, all of the carbon that trees have and plants have, for the most part, comes from that photosynthesis fixing. Um so Stuart O'Brien was texting in about uh, a technology we were talking about last week, which is a a sort of a plaster with peanut molecules on it, so to speak. And you put it on young kids who have a peanut allergy and you expose them to this over a a series of um, months. uh, And then when they become adults, they're less sensitive and less likely to have an anaphylactic shock that could kill them because they've swallowed a peanut. And Stuart says, it is these seemingly simple ideas that really make me appreciate the work that men and women in the science community do. This could be a real game changer for so many people and the fact that it was done with the help of Irish researchers makes it all the better. Great news story from the brother of someone with a severe peanut allergy. You know, there are so many stories in, in, the, in the last 12 months, much more than even in the last 12 years, I think, of extraordinary breakthroughs in medicine um and that uh you know that linking of ms uh to the epstein-barr virus really stands out this pill that we talked about this week about um you know reducing lung cancer fatalities it's you know we, we are really in a golden age of medicine i think 
Uh, James says, uh, we were talking about uh, clinical trials and, and the University of Galway is, has launched a new centre for clinical trials because we want to improve Ireland's standing, attract more, uh, you know, exciting and ex- experimental uh, drug treatments for those um, where there's an unmet need. And to do that, we, we sort of need to get our act together. That's the idea behind the University of Galway um, Clinical Trial Centre. James in Dublin says, yet another indictment of the Irish medical system that we don't have an active research system. What we do, but um, but when it comes to clinical trials, we just don't, we don't get our fair share, I suppose, given the infrastructure that we have. He goes on to say, good that something's finally been done about this, but really it should have been done a long time ago. Look, if... If you speak to um, politicians knocking on your door in the next 12, 12 months, say, you know what, this unique health identifier, this is actually important. I believe this is important because it'll modernize our whole medical system. I've been having conversations with medical professionals um, all this week. I'm uh, chairing the BioInnovate um, Symposium next week. And, you know, the lack of a robust infrastructure, the lack of the unique health identifier, uh, you know, uh, good access to sharing data, registries for different diseases. All of this stuff is is hugely important if we want a modern medical system and a modern healthcare system. And it, it's it's way more important than people think, but people just aren't motivated by it because it's like, you know, because the, 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 the trolleys are full and the, the fires are burning. But actually, it is something that we really should be making more of a, more of a, a noise about. Uh, another says, why do we still rely on paper records in hospitals? My mother was rushed into hospital a few weeks ago and had to go into emergency surgery. But the pace at which things moved was hampered significantly by the fact that nothing was electronic. One of the nurses said it would be another 10 years before it was introduced in that particular hospital. How? Where is the money we pump into the system going? And, you know, the funny thing is when I have conversations with healthcare leaders, as I've been doing in, in a, a podcast with Rosh called The Pathways to Personalized Healthcare, if you're interested in this sort of thing. Uh, what I found is that it's not a money issue. It's it, it, it's just administration. It's management. It's decision making. It's you know. It's just a lack of leadership really pushing this forward. And I think there needs to be more pressure publicly on, as I said, on on this issue. We need to get to a digital ecosystem, and we're being hampered by really silly things. Um, and we also did an, a, a kind of not related but um, next door to it perhaps we we did a a feature on bad data and someone says the problem is that if you do your numbers right people will still choose to believe what they want wasn't it Mark Twain who's quoting Benjamin Disraeli who I I don't know if he actually said it but that that quote of there are three types of lies lies damned lies and statistics and it is true that you know given, given a set of numbers there are people who can interpret those numbers very differently which is why Everyone's talking about data storytelling these days. Um, that's it from us on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to Simon Keane producing this week. Um, uh, Marisa Sullivan, Steve Daunt and Hugo De Silva was on sound. We'll be back with more on Tuesday with a really interesting chat with the AI ambassador for Ireland. Her name's Patricia Scanlon. Very intelligent, uh, very uh, interesting speaker. Um, she's a founder herself. Uh, in the AI space and talking about the things we really need to worry about in terms of AI when it comes to to ethics and how these enormous um, models can really have a really big effect if they're applied to things like education or healthcare or uh, or our our prison systems. And if we don't understand them, the effects of a slight tweak could really 
create an enormous rift or widen the divide between rich, poor, um, uh, a sick or healthy. Um, don't miss that one. That's on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.